This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Equity Minds! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is easy. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. I'm excited for this interview. There is a lot going on at the moment in markets. We all know that. Um, And we're lucky enough that we get to speak to experts and try and make sense of it and uh, We've got a great expert today to help us get our heads around it. That's it. It's our pleasure and with great excitement, we welcome Kerry Craig to the studio. Kerry, welcome. Hi, how are you guys doing today? We're very well. How are you? Very good, thank you. I, I appreciate being called an expert. I don't think I've been called that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're more more of an expert than we are. That yeah, is absolutely that's true. It's all relative. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Kerry is a global market strategist at JP Morgan. And before working at JP Morgan, he worked in economic research positions in the New Zealand government and in the UK pension industry. At JP Morgan, he is responsible for offering thought leadership and explaining market data and trends to JP Morgan's investment team and the broader investing community. Thanks to JP Morgan for sponsoring this episode as well. And today we're looking at the state of global markets and what it means for investors. But before then, uh, Kerry, uh, it's your first time on the show and would love to get to know you a little bit. Um, And we always like to start with the story of someone's first investment. We generally find there's a good story or a good lesson that comes out of it. So to kick us off today... What was the story of your first investment? Uh, my first investment was actually, uh, I think my mo- my mother had put some money into like a, a savings bond or something that I got when I turned 18. Uh, it wasn't very much. It was like a few hundred dollars. And uh, I knew I, it, it matured. I got the cash and I decided I was going to invest it in, in the stock market. Um, and I had been reading about a company in the press that sounded good. Uh, they sounded like they were growing. Um, so I, I basically, this is you know, way before we did online brokering. Uh, and I was living in a small town in New Zealand, um, you know, rang up uh, a brokerage and, and went through and, and, and bought some of these stocks. Uh, and that company no longer exists. I think mean, it was like the worst <laughs> investment ever. Um, and my lesson I quickly realized was that like, I just do not know enough 
about individual companies to really go in and and want to invest on individual stocks. So uh, since then, my philosophy has always been, I'll let other people who know way more uh, about companies do that for me. And I'll focus more broadly on my goals in investing and, and having the right mix of asset classes to try and achieve that um, rather than sort of worrying about, do I own this stock or that stock? And I just, I leave that up to the real experts out there to try and figure that out. Mm. So, Kerry, you've worked across uh, New Zealand, the UK and Australia. What have been some of the key lessons you've learned, some of the key differences between the markets? Um, Yeah, talk us through that. The one similarity uh, that's very true across all those markets is that uh, people love houses and uh, <laughs> they uh, have too much of a home bias in their portfolios. So in, in England, everyone was just thinking about the FTSE 100 and that was the biggest weight in their portfolio, even though you know it's dominated by uh, financials and energies companies. Similar in Australia, obviously everyone thinks about the, the ASX 200 and the equity market here. Uh, and in this New Zealand, it's kind of a mix between New Zealand and, and Australian stocks. So there's way too much home bias in, in people's portfolios. And I think that is the biggest mistake because they overlook uh, so many growth potential opportunities in their portfolio that come from investing offshore. And it's a pretty natural bias to have. Like you you want to invest in things that seem familiar, that you recognize, that you see. Uh, but I think that's a, a really good starting point. But if you're really thinking about how to grow a portfolio over time, you really need to look more broadly around the globe for where those where those opportunities really are going to come for and just cast the biggest net you can. The FTSE is a fascinating one. It's an index that I feel like it just never moves. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange one. It's, uh, it's, you know, dictated by currencies as much as anything else in terms of how things perform. It's also unusual because it's, you know, the UK and where it is right next to Europe, people focus just on, on the UK and the FTSE, but they sort of ignore what's happening in continental Europe and all the potential there. So it's an unusual one from like a geopolitical graphical perspective as mm. well in terms of where the companies generate their revenues. It's not really reflective of, mm. of the UK economy, which is, I guess, true about many equity markets around the world, but maybe a bit more um, severe in that case, if you want to think about it. Mm, mm. Yeah. I'm also, I, I, whenever we get a New Zealand guest on the show, we love to talk about uh, the the New Zealand startup scene and the, the technology companies coming out of there because it just feels like New Zealand punch above their weight. Obviously, zero is the big one. But um, like Straker translations, we've had them on the show. They're from New Zealand as well. What's got what's what's in the water over there? How are you guys, country of four million, producing so many good companies? I think it's just the fact that you know when you, I was there a couple of weeks ago uh, to see family for the first time in a very long time. But um, it, you know you just feel so far away. You go down there and you like literally feel like you're at the bottom of the world. Um, and so I think there's the mentality that you really have to strive uh, and try and do something amazing to really get um, a, a global presence and a global stage to get recognized and i think there's that definitely that mentality in a lot of businesses in new zealand they're not thinking oh how do i become big in new zealand they're thinking how do i become big around the world um it's just the the yeah i think it's the geographical isolation and potentially also just that that motivation to be more global in nature so carrie jp morgan have just released their guide to the market um before we get into the nitty-gritty um what would be some of the just headline key takeaways uh, the biggest themes and the questions we've been getting from clients the last three and six months really, really 
a few things like basically where's the bottom in equity markets you know is that coming um are we there yet when it comes to thinking about inflation and uh, how high bond yields and interest rates are going to go um and the third one is really how close are we to a recession those are the big questions that everyone's grappling with and uh, if you look at the market on a daily basis uh which i would urge you not to do uh, if you look at the market on a daily basis you know it's either inflation's winning and it's going to be too much or gross losing and there's not going to be enough of that and you know those are the things that are sort of pushing and pulling on markets at the moment and you're at that point where there's like not real clarity on which way it's going to go you got like a really strong inflation number out of the us yesterday we've had weaker data uh, coming through around many countries uh, and so it's not clear you know which way the market is going to go and in the background it's all about you know what central banks are going to do in reaction to higher inflation and, and weaker growth so it's a really tough time to be an investor uh, and to think about how to position in this environment because it's quite unusual. We don't have central banks don't have your back anymore. They're not propping up mm, the markets like mm. they have for the last few years. They're kind of like, you're on your own now. It's it's back to market forces. Yeah. So uh, if people aren't familiar with JP Morgan's Guide to the Markets, uh, it's released every quarter. And if people love charts and data, it's their dream. Uh, I think it's about 70, 70 slides of every chart you could imagine across all asset classes and all geographies. You said the one of the most common questions you're getting from clients is where's the bottom or are we at the bottom? And one of the first charts on the in, in the pack is about the S and P 500 being at an inflection point. Can you talk to us about that? If you can answer, are we at the bottom? That would be great. That yeah. would be a real scoop for us <laughs> on the podcast. But um, yeah, talk to us about I guess uh, are we at an inflection point? Um, and I mean, what's to come as as much as we can predict an unpredictable market? Unfortunately, I don't I don't think we're at the bottom just yet. What's been driving equity markets down or what's been pulling them down um, has been valuations. I mean, you can break down the return components of equities into dividends, uh, valuations, earnings, uh, and currency movements, if you're looking at that as well. Um, and what's really been dragging on the outlook or dragging on equity markets this year has been valuations. Like at the start of the year, uh, equity markets and particularly parts of the equity market like growth stocks in the US were really expensive um, because interest rates were low. And now when interest rates start to rise, um, those valuations don't look so compelling because you're discounting them back at a higher rate. You're thinking about those forward earnings and, and discounting them back. So they become less uh, worth less now. Um, and then suddenly you're also thinking about the, the growth outlook being weaker as well. So that's not usually that great for equities. You want higher growth for equities to go up. And that's just dragged valuations down. The, the equity valuation on the S&P 500 is down 27% to the first six months of this year. It's down 30% on the ASX 200 in the first six months of this year. That's a, a big headwind. But now what you haven't seen is earnings expectations really change. So the next sort of downward pressure on the market is really going to be about analysts sort of looking at uh, the growth prospects for the economies around the world, thinking about the revenues that are going to come in and also thinking about the cost pressures that come from rising input prices, higher wages, commodity prices, and worrying about margin compression as well. So I think that that uh, scope for earnings to be downgraded is, is probably what's going to keep pressure on equity markets and, and why it's too soon to say, oh, yeah, we've troughed. Everything's going to go up from here. That's a very much near-term view. I, I think the difference is that for a lot of people that we speak to, and again, myself, uh, I'm a long-term investor. You know, when I invest in markets, I'm not thinking about, oh, I'm going to sell next week. I'm thinking about, like, how can I grow my wealth over a number of years? Markets are cheaper and they've been for a very long time, yeah. and that's actually very positive for thinking about longer-term returns. The two key points of valuation uh what 
what multiple are we willing to pay and then what what the earnings actually are and we've seen the you know the the multiple compress but we're entering earnings season um in australia we're in confession season where the companies that are about to release poor earnings start to come hat in hand to the market and say um sorry what are you guys seeing at jp not just in australia and new zealand but around the world uh We've seen uh, what the multiples compress. Are we starting to see earnings look a little bit shaky? Uh, so what we've actually seen is that analysts haven't really changed their earnings expectations too much this year. Maybe that's because they're like everyone else looking for, for a clear indication of where things are going on inflation and growth. But you haven't seen that big shift in terms of a big drop in earnings expectations. So through the middle of the year, when we, we look at consensus earnings expectations for like the US, they're still around 10%. Uh, we would expect it to be like 5%, and that's what we think we're going to get for a full calendar year earnings. We can see scope for them to come down. But, you know, we think that if the inflation is still there, if you still at growth, that means nominal growth uh, is still good. That's actually positive for revenues. Where the pressure comes in is on margins. Those higher costs that are coming through are going to squeeze those margins, uh, and that's going to bring those earnings down. And then you're going to have distortion effects around just the surge in earnings. You're going to have the energy sector, uh, which is also sort of lifting the overall market earnings. And I think if you strip those out, things would actually look a lot a lot weaker as well. But I mean, we looked back over history over the last 100 years, um, and it's pretty rare to get a calendar year where you have both earnings being negative uh, and valuations being negative in terms of drag on the market. So it doesn't happen that often. And, and that sort of gives us some sort of scope to think, well, if it did happen, it would be really unusual. Yeah. yeah, right. Wow. Well, it could be quite a historic period we go into. <laughs> could be. <laughs> could be. So, Kerry, uh, you just mentioned that if inflation is still there and you said at the top one of the second questions your clients come with is, uh, have we seen the peak of inflation? Obviously, there's debate around whether or not we have. We've just seen numbers come out of the US overnight, uh, 9.1% year on year for June. So what's JP um, thinking about in terms of inflation? Are we at the top? Where to from here? It kind of varies by market. Obviously, in Australia, I mean, we think inflation is still going to go up at a headline level because of energy prices and food prices and, and a lagging effect of the housing market um, on the components of energies, of components of inflation, excuse me. So it's likely to keep rising here until the end of the year. Um, and also because we only get it every quarter, it's, it's harder to really judge what's happening. In like the US, inflation is probably pretty close to peaks. I mean, that was a really strong number that we just came out uh, over 9%. But if you look at some of the breaks, down in the core components, um, they actually rolled over. So it is about food prices, it is about energy prices, and a little bit about housing as well, which is driving those prices up. But those big ticket items that's caused inflation to surge earlier in the year, like used cars and new car prices, they've come off, right? So some of that transitory stuff that people talked about late last year, it is actually starting to unwind now. It just took a lot longer than expected. And so we would think that those core rates of inflation do start to soften over the course of this year. Headline inflation probably still going to be elevated, but maybe not 9% because of the, the, the downshift we're seeing in oil prices, for example. I think the biggest challenge with inflation is that it's going to come down really gradually. And so we are going to have inflation that is higher and that's going to keep those central banks, you know, wanting to keep tightening the, the policies um, and making sure that it's sort of heading back towards those 2% targets because, you know, at 9% we're some way from it. And so I think that's the difference. It's not just about the peak. It's about where inflation lands. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast uh, talking 
talking about uh, this whole inflation story. And obviously, uh, last year, everyone was like, inflation is transitory. This year, everyone was like, all right, it wasn't transitory. It was structural. But if we zoom out and let's say 20 years from now, where we're talking again and we say inflation started to rise in April 2021 and it peaked in July 2022. And by the end of 2022, it was back to sort of two, three, four percent. In the, in the fullness of time, would probably say, oh, that, that actually does look quite transitory. It is uh, temporary or transitory, whatever word you want to apply, apply to it, because by its very nature, inflation is a comparison of prices year on year, so the base effects roll out. Um, but it's also transitory in the fact that it's been successive waves of things that have actually created the inflation. So, you know, it had COVID, the supply disruptions coming out of China because of that, uh, the massive surge in demand for, for goods as we stuck, everyone was stuck at home and it was buying things on Amazon, for example. Uh, that faded out as, as we went back to thinking about spending on services, and then you had the reopen. Opening. And so that was another transitory impact. And then you've had Omicron come through. You've had you know China lock up various cities, which has impacted supply chains again. And then unfortunately, you've had the war in Ukraine, which has hit commodity prices and food prices as well. So there has been successive waves of transitory factors that have just kept inflation up, but they all will fade. And mm-hmm. so you're absolutely right. As we think about the end of this year and next year, inflation levels will hit back to like 4%. But if we think about what that is compared to what we've been in the last decade where we didn't have enough inflation, it looks very high. Where does JP think that um, central banks, particularly the Fed, will take rates sort of by the end of the year? There was commentary overnight that, you know, there's chance that they bump at 100 basis points next time they get the chance. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, w- w- yeah, w- what's your... go, that one. <laughs> yeah. What, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, the, I, we're looking at a target of about 3.5% on a Fed funds rate by the end of the year. Um, it, whether they do 100 basis points at the next meeting in a couple of weeks, uh, or they do 75 basis points as the market's really kind of priced in and accepted, if you want to put it that way, and then they do another 75 basis points in September, uh, I mean, it, it's kind of a bit semantics, to be honest, because they get to the same point. It's just how fast they get there. The challenge with doing 100 basis points, and they will be a far they could, because they've said, you know, we're leaving everything open, would be the, the shock it creates to, to markets and having to adjust for that. And then sort of really thinking about, well, how high could they go? Because, uh, you know, just before the inflation print, the market was very much in line with what the Fed had been saying, where they were going with interest rates and things become more palatable. It's, not just the peak in inflation that we're looking at, it's the peak in central bank hawkishness, hawkishness that mm. they want to become, okay, we're, we're going to start tapering down these rate hikes to 50 basis points, 25 basis points, and the market being comfortable with that. So uh, I think the the sticker shock from seeing 100 basis points, which does not happen at all very often, would be something the market would be really uh, difficult to digest. So I think they're probably more likely to go 75 uh, and then maybe sort of push towards another 75 at a further meeting instead of coming down to, to, to 50 or something. Like that. I mean, look, we're not a property or a housing podcast here, but when we talk about an 100 basis points rise, and, and I feel like there's a bit of commentary coming out of the US around from home builders saying that the market's softening a little bit over there. Are, are they going to see the housing price fall that Australians can only dream about? Well, Australian millennials can only dream about. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes back to that point, everyone loves property. Uh, you know, the, there's a few things we look at when we think about the, the US economy and, and the cycle uh, and some of the cyclical sectors and, and housing is one of them. Uh, it's not like flashing red or anything in terms of, of the pro- problems there. And you got to remember the way the mortgages work there, you can fix your mortgage for 30 years and not worry about it. So wow. if you've had the opportunity to do that, like in the last 12 months when rates were much lower, you're not really worried about 
buyout rates going up so much. It's people going into the market. How much price is going to fall really depends on the sort of structural imbalance in the housing market. And there is uh, an undersupply of houses in the US. Um, all that migration that happened out of the cities during COVID into other areas like the Sun Belts, the fact that companies are moving to more tax-friendly uh, states or where they think their workers are going to live and they can have access to them, that's created a real demand problem where there's not enough supply. And so those structural imbalances will actually keep prices, uh, at least create a floor to prices in our opinion. But it could be an investment opportunity as well if we think about rental income. And it is, a, is one of the reasons we think that there's probably less risk around a collapse in the housing market in the US more than anything else. But coming back to inflation, Shelter costs like rents and housing related costs, 30% of the inflation basket in the US. So any weakness there actually translates to lower inflation. And so you do want to see that housing market slow uh, to bring down that inflation. So the Fed will be looking uh, at what's happening in the housing market quite closely. But I don't think it'll collapse by any means. You see the headlines, oh, you know, Australian housing under pressure, Sydney down 0.1%. It's like, sometimes like, you Australian, just want to be involved. I know. Houses too, you know, come on. Yeah, Yeah, it's like, come on, guys, tell us something real. It's unbelievable. I think Sydney was down 0.2% from CoreLogic's data, but rents up 9%. Yeah. It's just like, can't win. Yeah. So, Kerry, um, Sort of outside of inflation, I guess, what else are markets pricing in at the moment from JP Morgan's point of view? And I guess more interestingly, what do you think markets are missing at the moment? It's interesting when you look across asset classes about the recession view, all right? So, uh, Markets are pricing a recession to different levels. Like you look at the equity market and say, oh, that's really reflecting a quite a strong probability of a recession. Or you look at uh, the spread between the two and 10-year yields in the US and the fact that it's negative now. And that's like, that's an indication of a recession. You look at the credit market, like investment-grade credit or high yields, and the spreads have widened a little bit, but not nearly at recession levels. And you think, well, they're not worried about recession. What the market is pricing in really varies about which part of the market you look at. But by and large, I think that they're thinking about how close we are to that recession view. Uh, and when we look at it, those risks have definitely increased. But I think there's scope to say that you know we're not really there on a global recession at all yet. We think about how markets are behaving, and that creates opportunity if you think, well, equity markets have gone too far, so we have upside risk, or if you think, well, credit's actually relatively well-priced and we don't think spreads are going to blow out because we don't see that recession, so got income and protection opportunities there. So I think there's that, that narrative in terms of if you really worry about recession, which part of the markets are reflecting and which parts aren't, and how you take advantage of that. The second thing we, we think when we look at like what are the risks out there is actually negatively another big energy shock, right? So obviously gas supply to, to the Eurozone from Russia, they've, they've put in that maintenance period for the Nord Stream 1 uh, pipeline at the moment. There's a fear they don't restart it, right? And that would have a big impact on energy prices in Europe. It would ripple around the world, particularly in Asia, where they tend to move closely. And then there's also the potential that you see further um, retaliation for sanctions around oil price caps. And you could get a big jump in, in oil prices again. And I think that energy shock would be something that would be very much tipping you into recession when you're, when you're so, so close to being close to zero. So it's like riding a bike. The slower you go, the easier it is to fall off. And it wouldn't take much of a shock to actually knock you over at the moment. So the big upside risk to inflation, I think is something not really reflected in, in markets right now. Mm, fascinating. I like I like the bike analogy. I haven't heard that one before, but it <laughs> yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Most of my analogies don't get cleared by compliance. <laughs> 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 
love that. <laughs> well, they should clear them, that's for sure. Before we turn to discussion on macro forecasts and uh, a few questions around China and then where JP are finding opportunities in the market at the moment, we're just going to take a very short break to hear from our sponsors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Kerry, the value of macro forecasts. Now you're a um, market strategist and we've been having a bit of a chat here at Equity Mates over the last sort of week or so, uh, trying to sort of figure out whether or not all the headlines that we see and everything that's going on actually you know, deserves the brain space that it sort of consumes when it comes to particularly retail investors. And, um, you know, we're asking the question, is it as bad as people think or have we reached sort of peak pe- pessimism? So what would be your sort of response to to those thought starters? It comes back to time horizon. I think that, you, you know, for many people, and that's why it came earlier, I said, you know, if, if you have the opportunity, don't look at the markets every day because most people aren't trading on a daily basis. They're, they're not looking at the value of their house every day, for example. You know, they look at it as it gone up since last year. And it should be the same with your portfolio. So I think when it comes to a lot of these forecasts, just think about your time horizon and what matters for you when you're an investor. And for a lot of us, it's, it's multiple years we're thinking about investing over. And so uh, a lot of that volatility we experience now, a lot of the, the forecasts that say, oh, we're going to fall into a recession in the next few months, they're less meaningful. In fact, if you look across history in terms of recessions or bear markets and uh, contractions and expansions in the economy, you know, on average, uh, an expansion is five years or more. Um, and on average, uh, a re- contraction or recession is less than one year. So they're relatively short periods of time. We think about the market going up in those expansionary periods and they're kind of the, the exception to the rule. The second thing I would say about this is that, you know, while the headlines say and macro forecasts might be thinking about a downshift and a recession, a lot of it's to do with like how deep it will be and how long it's going to last and the severity of it. And I think for, for younger investors out there who are looking, well, <laughs> had all these historical once in a year, hundred events in the last couple of years, that, that can't be right. They're thinking about the, the depth of their recession from the pandemic, which was very painful and very severe. Uh, if you go further back, you've got the GFC, which was this massive systemic shock around the world that came from the subprime crisis in the US. Those were exceptions to how recessions usually look. And so, you know, we might head for a recession. It might be actually very mild. There's few really big structural imbalances in the economies around the world today, which would need to be fixed by a really large recession. And so it could be the case that, yeah, we get a recession. It's not that deep. It's not that long. And it doesn't have the same big impact on on companies that, you know, everyone's expecting it to. So it's not just about those forecasts that say recessions or, or where we're headed. It's always about, you know, how deep and long it's going to be as well. 
Mm. On that point around the um, there's not that many like structural imbalances. The one the one thing that I'm I'm really trying to get my head around and I guess sort of reconcile is, you know, on one hand there's negative data and inflation headlines that, but also the stock market numbers really tell that story. But then on the other hand, the employment market is just ripping along and, you know, like participation rates are at all-time highs, unemployment rates are at all-time lows. Um, There was some data that came out of the US recently that layoff rates are less than 1%. So, like, there might be some hiring slowdowns, especially in, like, the tech sector, but in terms of people getting laid off or fired, it's, like, not really materialising. And I just try and reconcile that information with, like, the chat uh, in the news around a recession's coming and I, I just struggle to put two and two together. So, Kerry, you're the expert. Help me understand it. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty working for that expert title today. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. You don't you don't get a recession without rising uh, unemployment or a slowing material slowdown in employment growth. I mean, that's also part of the stagflation argument. You know, people say, oh, we're heading towards stagflation. Too much inflation, not enough growth. Um, the third part of stagflation is actually rising unemployment, and that's what you don't have at the moment. You've got, as you rightly said, uh, record high participation rates here in Australia. You've got uh, almost two uh, job openings for every unemployed person in the US at the moment. Wow. Uh, there's serious demand for uh, for people. Uh, some of that's structural, some of it's demographics, older people retiring, people who are retired during COVID as they just you know wanted to spend more time with family or whatever, so they're moving all out. Um, you haven't had the same incentive to come back in, perhaps again, COVID-related reasons are keeping out of the labour market. But there's definitely demand out there for, for workers. And so, again, that sort of lessens the impact of thinking about the recession when you think, well, people are still earning money. There's a good price that the, their wages will go up a little bit because of that demand. There are certain rules out there that you know central banks have looked at that said if you get an unemployment raise of 0.5 percentage points, so if it goes to a bit above four in the US, that that would actually be enough for a recession, even though the unemployment rate is still very low. But I think what everyone has looked at over time is that that relationship, those historical relationships between the economy and the labour market or inflation and the labour market just, just have, haven't held up like they expected them to. There's Phillips curve, for example. And so they're just questioning how those relationships play through in the past. I mean, technically... In a couple of weeks when we get the GDP numbers out of the US, they could be negative and technically you'd had a recession because you had a negative yeah. first quarter, but it doesn't really feel like a recession when you still have strong labour markets. So it comes back to how you define these things uh, more broadly. So I think that the labour market and the strength we're seeing is actually very much a positive for, for the economies around the world, not just in the US, but here in Australia, uh, over in Europe, they have very low unemployment rates. So it's a very much a, a point of strength for, for thinking about how resilient the global economy has been in the face of all these shocks. So China has obviously been um, a sort of a pretty big talking point given their aggressive approach to COVID zero, but subsequently it feels like they're just starting to uh, open up a little and um, I guess change that policy and and that hopefully will have uh, good implications for Australian commodities at least. So what's um, JP Morgan's view on China's sort of approach at the moment towards COVID and, on, and the ongoing impact that's going to have globally? 
China's actually, and, and the broader Asian region is trying to reopen is actually one of our preferences right now. So if we think about where we see growth, it kind of comes back to that point I made earlier around <laughs> avoiding home bias. You know, China's at a very different point in its cycle than, say, the US. Like, they've had that much later wave of having to deal with the Omicron variant. Uh, they're now reopening. Uh, it kind of seems like they're coming around the idea to the fact that they're going to have to live with COVID rather than trying to stamp it out completely, but they're not quite there yet. Obviously, they have to think about their vaccines. They've rolled out the vaccination rates among elderly, the pressures it's creating. Um, but it does seem like we could be moving away from those massive city-wide lockdowns that we, you'd want to get away from and something you know maybe more localized. Mm. Um, and so that's quite positive for that reopening. And we're seeing it in the data, right? You've seen a lot of uh, retail sales pick up, fixed asset investment pick up. You're seeing people wanting to get out there and spend again. Uh, and you're also getting massive support uh, on the policy side. So very low cash rates. They're, they're making it easier for banks to lend the issuance of local government debt is running at a really accelerated pace compared to prior years. So you get fiscal spend as well and credit being pushed into the economy. But they're doing it in quite a managed way because they are worried about the property sector. They're trying to deleverage the economy overall. They don't want the money going to the wrong places. So that's why you're not seeing this big surge in growth. That's why they're doing it in quite a, you know, if you look at the Chinese equity market, valuations are really cheap. Um, there's still some great growth stories in the companies coming out there. And you should see that demand come back through. And that is, as you rightly mentioned, going to have a positive impact on the broader Asian region uh, and APAT, Asia Pacific region. So that demand for commodities coming back through um, how it feeds into the, the external sector and uh, many Asian economies, as well as domestic demand we see coming through there. So it's a, a really much a bright spot for the world when we think about what's happening in the US and Europe. So we have a very uh, favorable take on what's happening in China at the moment. The only caveat to that is that policies and officials haven't really been super clear that they're, they're not going to lock down cities just yet. So I think if those case numbers do start to accelerate from here uh, and we don't see that city wide lockdown, that'll be a very positive uh, view for the market. But we haven't really seen just how they're going to treat a new outbreak. And that would be the only thing that really presents a risk at the moment for us. One thing about China that, you know, uh, there was about a month last year where we all became experts in Chinese property development <laughs> and, um, you know, the the leverage with Evergrande and it's $300 billion in debt and, you know, they defaulted on some debt, they've been trying to deleverage, but the, the whole sector is... I guess overborrowed and overbuilt. Um, we we came across some stat in the office earlier this week that there's 90 million empty homes or apartments in China, which is enough to fit the whole country of Germany or the whole country of the UK, which is pretty crazy. How do you think about you know the the opportunity of reopening in and the stimulus and and what that could mean for the equity markets, while at the same time China is trying to manage this, um, I guess deleveraging in the the property development in the real estate sector. Yeah, I, mean, I was just saying, it's, it's amazing how quickly we can move from being experts in one topic to the other. I mean, I was just getting with being an expert in uh, virus mutations, but um, the the property sector, I mean, it's it comes down to like how local governments generate taxes and selling of land to property developers and the incentives that were put in place for them to expand so quickly, as well as the, the leverage they were using. Um, and obviously, the property sector is very large in terms of the, the Chinese economy, so it did become a bit of a systemic issue that China is now trying to control. They have eased up on some of those pressures they were putting on the property developers. Um, you have seen uh, credit start to flow. You haven't seen them being necessarily bailed out in a big way, but they're definitely easing back on some of the regulatory pressures coming through. 
And at the same time, they're making it uh, a bit easier for, for households to, to actually, or consumers to actually go out and buy those homes in terms of some of the tax incentives they're putting through and some of those red lines that they had drawn being removed. So they're definitely easing up on that. I don't think it's going to go away. It's going to take many years to get rid of that leverage um, and for that sort of stock of houses and demand to, to balance itself out. But it's in China, they don't think about one, two years. They're thinking about, you know, they're planning for the economy for five years. They're thinking about the longer term. And so the Chinese goal is always to have a sustainable environment for their economy to go in. Uh, and they're probably willing to accept a bit of near-term pain to achieve that. And it comes back to that long-term view and the planning they put into the economy, which is quite envious if you think about, you know, just how short-term some governments look at their own economy or, or how fast politics changes in places like Australia. So I, I think it will be a case of those target growth rates coming down as they deal with that. Um, but again, the fact they are dealing with it is actually quite positive in thinking about the opportunity in the Chinese equity market and these big overhangs maybe not being such a, a risk as they were in the past. So I think there'll be scope for a good, good long-term returns coming out of China given the valuations in the equity markets have fallen so much. Now, Kerry, if your compliance team won't let your analogies pass, there's definitely (laughs) no way that they're going to let you give us some individual stocks. But if we can close the interview, um, well, at least just before we get to our final three questions, if if you're able to at least um, uh, shed some light on where um, JP Morgan strategists are seeing opportunities in the market without giving stock specifics, um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, The opportunities... It kind of is yet to present themselves. When you think about how we treat asset allocation right now, it's very balanced. It's very focused on quality. We're looking for those turns to come through. And when it comes down to thinking about like equities and where we see the greatest opportunity, it's going to be on companies that have pricing power and cost control. Uh, so as you mentioned earlier, like, you know, some of the tech stocks are, are you know, uh, getting rid of staff as they're trying to cost those, cut those costs because they're the biggest cost for them. Material and energy companies and some of the industrials have the ability to pass those on. So we're looking at those a little bit more closely. But it's all about operational leverage. So it's really difficult to say by this sector, by value, by growth, it does become much more nuanced than thinking about bottom-up analysis. And all the companies are being unfairly penalized given the earnings outlook is actually still pretty good on a three or five-year basis just because of a one-year view. We actually see better opportunity in credit markets right now. So we'd be looking at the fact that investment grade credit, you know, spreads have widened a little bit, but you know, in the US investment grade space, they're they're only roughly aligned with their average over the 10 years. Uh, you're getting quite a good yield pickup over treasuries, uh, and it's a quality asset. It's not something that's going to damage your portfolio. It gives you a bit of ballast. And we probably push that into thinking about high yield bonds as well, where again, spreads aren't thinking about a recession. Uh, you've got really decent um, yield coming from those again, uh, which is something people always need. And if, if there is a case of thinking about a, a recession that's not so deep and not so de- severe, if it does come, then your default rates aren't going to be as high uh, and you're actually going to do better there. And moreover, these companies have, have had really good opportunities to like refinance all their debt for many years when interest rates were really low. So they're not really facing this massive wall of maturity that's going to hit them and, and suddenly think about um, having to refinance at higher interest rates. So we would definitely focus more on the credit space right now than, than the equities overall if we're looking for opportunities in the market. But again, in equities, I think that barbell between quality in the US and, and quality in, in Australia companies and then growth in Asia and China is a really good way to think about a portfolio right now. Nice. I love that. Well, Kerry, we start we started the interview by joking uh, that you haven't been called an expert before. I'm confident after this interview, you will be called an expert again because you've shared uh, a lot of great insight with us and, and we really appreciate you taking the time. 
We have almost reached the end of our time, but we do like to finish with the same final three questions. Before we get into them, if people want to read JP Morgan's Guide to the Market for the quarter, or if they want to read more from you or follow you online, is there anywhere in particular they should go? Uh, yeah, they can just check out our website. All our information is, is freely available. We, we want people to use it. We, we don't protect it behind firewalls or paywalls, or you don't have to be a financial advisor, for example, to look at it. It's just all there. It's designed for people to use. If you do love charts, as you mentioned, there's plenty to look at. If you're having trouble sleeping, they're always good to have a have a flip through. Um, if anything, there's probably uh, too much information. But go to the JP Morgan Asset Management website. That's the best place to get all our research and have a look. And it's all freely available up there. Well, we'll get stuck into these final three questions, Kerry. And the first one is, do you have any books that you consider must read? Weirdly enough, I was thinking about this question. I don't read a lot of financial books. I mean, I think it's from spending all my days reading financial research <laughs> and, and looking at markets. I tend to to read other, mainly science books when I'm at home. Um, I did read a uh, legend uh, about the All Black team uh, recently. And I think that's a really good book just to thinking about being in a team and some really good principles to live by. I think if you wanted to look at some materials that would be increasingly important for thinking about the markets today, there is something on our website called uh, The Principles of Long-Term Investing. And they're probably very familiar to people, you know, diversification, thinking about the long run and time horizons, thinking about how dividends and reinvestment really add to that. Those are the principles that really do sit home today and, and actually going to uh, draw out the best profile for, for returns, I think, from here on out. So I think that would be something I would definitely urge people to go and look at more than anything else. Nice one. Love that. Um, and uh, very true to form to get a uh, All Blacks reference in in the interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a cliche, yeah. Now, Kerry, we, uh, we said your compliance team isn't going to let you talk about any individual stocks in terms of investment opportunities, but this question isn't, isn't about a company as an investment opportunity. This is about a company just based on who it is as a company, its competitive advantage, its quality. So with that caveat in mind, what's the best company you've ever come across? The best company I've ever come across is the one that listens to its customers and its investors. And I can give you an example of a company that I think is, is quality and, and makes sense for what's happening today. Uh, there's a big issue, obviously, around the world as we think about sustainability and we think about environmental costs and climate change. Fed scarcity is, up is another big one. And you can take a company like Deer. They, uh, an agricultural company, they're really much focused on how they can deliver for their customers and their investors in terms of that environmental aspect, uh, that food quality aspect, and also how they can deliver for return for their investors. And they do that through building technology and AI into their uh, machinery. So they're getting higher crop yields. They're using less water and less fertilizer, which is great for farmers and agricultural producers using the machinery. And they're going to be something that stands out in that sector when they're thinking about what's going to deliver in terms of those longer run investment opportunities. So I think that there's a clearly an example of a company that's thinking about their consumers and customers and their investors and also the broader environment and how they're going to deliver on that. And I think that's a, a great example of a, of a longer term company that's going to continue to, to be a standout within that sector. So again, coming back to investment applications, if you can find those companies within sectors around the world, uh, those are the ones that are going to really perform over the long term and, and, you know, actually continue to, to be okay through these really volatile periods that we're having at the moment. And then final question, Kerry, if you think back to your younger self, uh, making that first investment in the New Zealand company that no longer exists, <laughs> um, what advice would you give to your younger self? 
I would have just, yeah, I mean, I thought I started early. Like I was yeah, 18. I thought that was a pretty good start to get into the markets, uh, but I wish I'd done more. So I, I did that one and then I kind of left it. I, I wish I'd actually done more and, and just kept investing in other things. And, um, uh, you know, what I do now is what I should have done when I was younger. I just, I, I, I continue investing in, in the markets every month. I don't look at it. I just continue to put money away. Um, I know it'll eventually go up over my time horizon. And I, I wish I'd started doing that at a much younger stage in terms of just being continued and investing rather than just putting some money in and waiting and hoping something good happened that I'd just be more involved in the market. So my message to my younger self would be like, don't spend your money on surfboards. Go and buy more stocks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do have some nice surfboards though, so it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kerry, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing your time with us today. We've taken a lot out of this episode. There's plenty to cover in, in global markets at the moment and you've helped us to make some sort of sense of, of uh, a lot of the big topics. So very much appreciate your time and, and again, thank you for JP Morgan for supporting this episode as well. So uh, we look forward to hopefully catching up again at some point in the future. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for having me on today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Gary. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Equity Mates. We love hearing from you. So drop us a line at contact at equitymates.com or even better, go to your podcast player and leave a five-star review. Also, a reminder that the Equitymates content train doesn't stop when you've run out of episodes to binge. We've got a brand new website, a Facebook discussion group. We're on Instagram, YouTube, and slowly making our way as an influencer on TikTok. Well, that's Ren. So uh, come and say hello and join the community. We'd love to welcome you. Until next time. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. Equitymates gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by a range of financial service professionals. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Equitymates Media does not operate under an Australian financial services license and relies on the exemption available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect of any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast or video. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.